0: Uh, Let's read uh, the first scripture for today's sermon. It's in Colossians 4, 2-6. It says, Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer to everyone.
1: Good morning once again. (laughs) We are going to start off with another scripture from Luke 14 15 through 24. I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lands and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And now I ask you to join with me as we pray for our pastor and Caden as they preach today. Dear Lord, I am so excited that you have given us this great opportunity to hear your words spoken from another young and dedicated voice of our congregation. I pray that as he teaches your word, he is guided and spoken through, reaching out to the spiritual needs of the church and leading all of us farther into our faith. I hope that as you have prepared Caden, you prepare our congregation to receive this sermon with support and understanding of both the message and the messenger. Once again, thank you for this wonderful chance. Please guide Caden and assist him in your mission every step of the way.
0: So the questions you just saw on the screen were the five questions that we kind of sorted out that you sent in. And leading you in the response to the first one today is Caden Walker. Caden's been our summer ministry <coughs> intern this week. He's gonna be with us just another week longer. I think he's the 16th summer ministry intern. Uh, so you as a congregation have been, done a great job of raising up young leaders. And uh, Caden is a sophomore at the University of Iowa studying religious studies. Uh, God has called him into uh, a life of what we pray will be very fruitful ministry. Will you welcome him to his own pulpit and to your pulpit uh, today, Marian Methodist? Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, Go Hawks. So we're just going to get into it. So this week is our first Sunday in our new sermon series, Crowdsourcing. Um, The next few weeks, we will be discussing several questions that you guys, uh, members of the congregation, submitted to be answered by us. And the question we'll be discussing today is, why is it necessary to be in relationships with pre- and post-Christian friends? And how can I effectively share the gospel with my pre- and post-Christian friends? And so, before we get into it, we must define what it means to be a pre- and post-Christian person. A pre-Christian is a person that has not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And a post-Christian is a person that at one point in their life... Claim to be a Christian, claimed to have a relationship with Jesus, but has since renounced or deconstructed their faith and is no longer living for the Lord. So now that we got that cleared up, let's just start by digging into our first passage um, that came to us from Luke. It goes on um, as Jesus prepares to teach this parable that we just read in response to that first man's comment. It starts off with this wealthy man who is preparing to host this great, extravagant banquet and feast. He goes out and he tells everyone, come in, for everything is now ready. And this is worth noting just because this was a long time ago and they didn't have clocks or watches or anything like that. So when someone was hosting an event like this, there would be two invitations that would be sent out. The first invitation would be like an RSVP of sorts. It would be sent out ahead of time and people would respond with whether or not they would be attending. And for an event like this with a host of such high stature, somebody so well known and respected, such a fancy event, people are going to mark yes. They're going to say, yes, I'm coming because this is such a high honor even to be invited. And then there would be the second invitation that would be sent out. The host would let people know on the day of that the time has come for the event to start. We have finished preparing and we are ready for you to come in. But then once the second invitation is sent out and what we just read, they start to make excuses. Oh, I have to go check out this field I just bought. I have to go test out my my oxen that I just bought. Or I I just got married, so I can't come. These are just, they're such awful excuses. Like how many people out there would go and buy land without, te- without seeing it first? Or spend all this money on five yoke of oxen without testing them out first to make sure they work well? And it's not like they're expecting these things to just disappear overnight. No, they, are, they know that all of these things will still be there after the banquet. When the time had come for them to actually go They were so caught up in themselves, so caught up in their earthly possessions that they no longer wanted to go because their temporary desires had become more important to them than things that really mattered. They missed out. They had their opportunity and their chance, but they blew it. And it was too late. It was too late for them. And I think we have a tendency when we read passages like this to look at the people and the story that are making these bad decisions and think like, how could they be so stupid? How are they making such bad decisions? Don't they realize that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, that they should be honored to even be invited? We think, why don't they want to go? Don't they realize what they're missing out on? But I think a good rule of thumb that when we're reading pa- passages like this, parables, is that when someone is being dumb, when they're making these bad decisions... That's usually who represents us, who so represents you and me. Jesus then continues in this parable by telling how the owner then ordered all of his servants to go out and invite the local people off the streets to come in and enjoy the banquet because there was still room at the table. People were invited, but they didn't come, and so there was space. The servants respond to this by saying, Master, we have already done this. It has already been done. We have already invited all of the people off the local streets and alleyways, but yet there is still room at the table. Then the master tells them, Go out to the far roads, to the country lanes, and compel them to come in. Persuade them to come in. Bring them in so that my house will be full. And if you have not yet figured it out, the banquet in this story is heaven. The host is Jesus. The broken people being invited are the non-Christians. And the servants are the disciples, the believers, you and me. This invitation that has been given to you and to me, to all of us, is to accept our heavenly reward found in Jesus. This passage makes it abundantly clear to us as believers that we must go out to the ends of the earth, to the the alleyways, the streets, doing whatever is necessary, bring in the outsiders to Jesus' heavenly banquet, compel them to come into Christ. It's saying that as believers, we are called to do whatever is necessary to ensure that the people around us are invited to the banquet, that they know what Jesus has done for them. So that answers our first part of the question of why is it necessary to be in relationship with pre- and post-Christians? And the answer is because they need to be invited. No one in the story came without being invited and they're not going to come to church unless someone brings them. They're not going to come to Christ unless somebody shares the gospel with them. And it said we're to compel them to come in. So the question, how can we as believers compel the people around us? that brings us to our second passage for today that was read by Zoe, or by Gonzo, Colossians 4, and it very clearly lays out the answer to our question. We're going to start off in verse 2. It reads, Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That's our first point on how to effectively evangelize with our pre- and post-Christian friends, is we must devote ourselves to prayer. We see an example of this in the garden before Jesus is crucified. He's about, he knows what is about to happen. He lays down his life, submits in prayer to God. He says, Father, if there is any way for me to avoid this punishment, avoid this death, and allow them to still be saved, let it be Spare my life if possible. He begs God for there to be a way for him to avoid crucifixion, but he fully submits to the Father, knowing that the answer means that he's about to endure something that none of us can even imagine, that he's going to endure dying on a cross, a slow death. He is literally the son of God in the flesh, but yet even he understands that he can't do it on his own. And so if Jesus, the Son of Man, cannot do it, on its, do it on its own, what makes us think that we can? It shows us that prayer is not a suggestion. It is a commandment given to us by God to be in relationship and constant communication with Him so that we may know Him, know His will, and desire to be more like Him. We are to pray purposefully that God may present opportunities in our daily lives, opportunities for us to share the gospel with unbelievers. It means that every single day we must bow down at the feet of Jesus, on our knees, submit our lives to him, asking him, God, use me as a vessel to further your plan. God, I cannot do it on my own. Use me for your glory, to radiate your love. I give up everything that I hold dear to my heart because I know that my plans are nothing compared to what you have in store for me. That is what it is saying to us in this passage. Saying that on our own we can't do it. We cannot save people. That's something that only can be done by the Father. We must allow him to work in us allow him to come into us so that he we can plant seeds in the heart of people that's all we can do seeds that we can plant that god will take and bear them into beautiful trees that will bear fruit god can take this seed that we plant in their hearts and use it to turn them into new creations use it to bring them into eternal life in heaven that brings us to our next point And which it reads from verse 5, we must be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders so that we can make the most of every opportunity. And we know this from firsthand experience, just interacting with people, that first impressions are important. They stick around. And unbelievers, pre- and post-Christians, they will judge Christianity, they'll judge the church, not by preaching or from the Bible, but from the way that they see the members of the church interact and walk and their conversations in their daily lives. The non-believer's first impression of Christianity is a bunch of false Christians. They claim the faith, but then do not live according to the word. They will never want to come to Jesus. These non-Christians, they might not be as open to what you have to say as they are towards observing your behavior and attitude. So, point number two on how to effectively evangelize with our non-Christian friends is we must live in a way that accurately reflects Jesus. As Christians here on earth, we represent Jesus to the unbelievers around us. We must act and behave in a way that is reflective of the love that God has showed for us. The love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, so that we may, so that those people, the non-believers, the pre and post Christians, may truly understand the depth of God's love, how much He truly loves them, and what the plan He has for them. The issue of this of false Christianity and church hurt is shown in a 2017 Lifeway research study that stated a majority, 66% of Americans aged 23 to 30 that were regular attendees of church said they stopped attending church on a regular basis for at least a year after turning 18. Among their top reasons was that the church members seemed divisive, judgmental, or hypocritical. And see, that's the problem that we see so often in our church, that many self-proclaimed Christians will claim God, but then they'll leave on Sunday mornings and they'll just leave, live the rest of their life like they don't even know who he is. They're going out, living for the world and hurting others under the name of Jesus. So this is the reflection that all, that, of Jesus that all the unbelievers will see, a bunch of people that claim God but then go out and live just like everyone else, a bunch of hypocrites. And so why would they want to be a part of that? Pastor Andley Stanley of the Atlanta area. He leads one of the largest churches in the country. He recently cited um, the top five reasons that people leave the church that he has seen. The top reasons were they had a bad church experience, or church members prioritized or defended viewpoints over people, they prioritized doctrine over salvation. And secondly, they did not feel welcome by the congregation. Not, did not feel welcome in a church community. And I want us to take a look at those reasons again and reflect back on them and notice how all of these reasons were based on the brokenness of the people, on the way that we have treated them. None of those reasons were based on the true understanding of our great God that we know. You and me The people of the church, we are the biggest reasons a newcomer will stay or leave after visiting a new church. We are their first interaction, their first impression. So therefore, if we want to have relationships with pre- and post-Christian friends, we must invite them. If we want to effectively bring them into that heavenly banquet with Jesus, we must be an accurate reflection of God's love. We must reflect the love that Jesus showed for us on the cross, the same love and mercy when Jesus took on our sins and our punishments that we deserve for the sins that we've committed. Unconditional love. This is shown again in our youth group here at Marion Methodist. It's called 412, and it's based off the Bible verse 1 Timothy 412. They set an example in speech conduct, love, faith, and purity. Showing that everything we do must be a reflection of Jesus. Every step that we take, every breath that we breathe must be pointed towards the glorification of Christ. Must be surrounded around Jesus so that every moment of our lives is solely focused on glorifying him. Solely focused on Jesus. Because our goal as Christians, as the first impressions of the faith is that when an unbeliever looks at us, when they look at the way we live our life, they will look at us and they'll go, man, that person loves Jesus. That person is so joyful despite their circumstances. They're so full of love towards everyone no matter how they're treated. And they'll think, man, how can I get some of what that person has? How can I be more like that? Where did they get that from? And then we can tell them, that it's all found in the name of Jesus in his blood on the cross. Paul continues on in Colossians, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Make the most of every opportunity. I love that and it brings me to a story that I wanted to share with you all. I'm gonna be honest when I say I don't remember where it came from. I heard it from a, a pastor several years ago, and it's always stuck with me. pastor said, my greatest fear as a Christian man is that the time of the Lord's judgment has arrived. And I'm standing in this theoretical line waiting to go ju- be judged before God, standing in line, the staircase to heaven. And behind me in line is my neighbor, a man that I've known my entire life, an unbeliever. We come closer and closer to standing before God, and he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, Caden, why didn't you tell me? Our entire lives we knew each other, and you became a pastor, and you've known this, and you knew what would come, but you never told me. How could you do this to me? You were my only chance. Were you so caught up in your own life and your own priorities that the things in your life, the things that have now faded away with this world that is gone, that those things, those temporary things were more important in your life than my salvation, than sharing the gospel with me? Did you never care about me enough to engage in a slightly uncomfortable conversation? Why didn't you tell me? He said, and this pastor said that this was his greatest fear, because he knew that once this moment arrived, that there was nothing he could do, that he had missed his opportunity. Time had run out. Time had run out. Something that our, our former youth pastor here at Marion Kelsey used to say a lot was, "You might be the only Jesus that that person will ever meet. Might be the only Jesus." person in their life, the only Christian that will ever have the opportunity given to them to share the gospel with them. You might be the only person in their life that has a relationship with Jesus, and so it is our opportunity as Christians, this is our calling, to make sure that they don't go their whole lives without knowing what God has done for them, that Jesus laid down their life for him without hearing the gospel. This could be the very reason that God placed that person in your life, to share with them the good news that Jesus died for them so that they could be made new and inherit eternal life with our creator. And we just read a moment ago from verse 5, let your conversation be always full of grace. So how do we do this? What do these graceful conversations look like? And I'll tell you that it doesn't look like just going through the motions. It doesn't look like not sharing the gospel with them because we're afraid. It looks like radically sharing the gospel. If you hear nothing else that I say today, this is it. Radically share the gospel. This calling has been placed upon our lives and must be the focus of everything that we do. Everything else comes secondary because we know that nothing else is as important. If We think about the original 12 disciples. Where would the church be, the modern day church be now, if those original 12 had just lived their life comfortably? If they had just lived their faith hidden in the closet? What would be different if they had never shared with the people around them what they have seen Jesus do? Every single one of them suffered great deaths horrible deaths because they understood that their lives meant nothing compared to heaven, compared to eternal life. So that brings us to our third point for this morning on how to share, effectively share the gospel with the non-believers in our life. We must speak in a way that proclaims the grace and love of Jesus. We can follow the example of what those original 12 did They made the gospel the number one priority in their lives, even if it meant torture and death and giving up everything that they had, enduring the worst things imaginable. This online group called the Church Trainer Group conducted a study where they polled their members, asking them, what initially brought you to church? The overwhelming majority, over 83% average, said they came to the church for the first time because of an invite by a friend or relative. Another statistic, the Billy Graham Association conducted a national survey said that 82% of the the non-churched, non-Christians say they would come to church with a friend or relative if invited. So we have to ask ourselves, what is holding us back? Why is our fear keeping us from proclaiming this? Showing us that we must be desperate in our pursuit of evangelism. It shows us here in this passage we are to have our conversations filled with grace. For our conversations to be filled with grace, we cannot be timid in our pursuit of evangelism. We cannot be reluctant to evangelize because we know that it's not graceful, it's not loving to knowingly keep a person away from this heavenly banquet. And when I'm talking to somebody it's not a Christian. I know I'm really bad at doing this a lot of the time because of my fear. Whether it's somebody on my floor or somebody I sit next to in class, it's a lot easier to just not talk or to talk about something casual. If you go to the University of Iowa, we can just talk about like football or how much we don't like Brian Ferentz. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with these conversations because it's fairly easy for us to transition that. Into a gospel conversation. It's even easier for me than it is for most people, because usually in college, like the second or third question somebody will ask you is, hey, what's your what's your major? And I'm a religious studies major because I want to go into ministry after I graduate. And that's not a very common major at my school. So most of the time people will ask, like, oh, that's that's interesting. So what do you want to do with that? What's your plan? And it would be so easy for me to say, oh, um, I want to become a pastor because I gave my life to Christ when I learned that Jesus died on the cross in my place so that I could be made into a new creation. And since then, I have seen him dramatically, drastically change my life for the better. Since then, he has called, placed this calling of ministry on my heart, so I'm pursuing it. See, that'd be so easy. and that's such a, That conversation is so full of grace. It would be so easy, but yet I find myself taking the easy way out far too often. And I'm going to get better, just like I know so many of you have, and you filled these pews with people because of your invitations. There's a quote that I really like on this. Charles Spurgeon stated this on the issue. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. It cannot be a high appreciation of Jesus and a silent tongue about him. This quote is saying that if you are truly a Christian, if you have truly been made into a new creation through Jesus' blood, you won't be able to help yourself to do anything but share the gospel. You won't be able to stop yourself from telling everyone you meet what Jesus has done for them because you realize, we recognize how urgent this cause is, how desperately they need Jesus and what they will, en- what they will have to endure if they do not accept him. It is impossible to be a Christian and not be convicted of this, to not evangelize. We read earlier about the great banquet and about how the the host that we now know to be Jesus told his servants, go out and invite the outsiders, go to the streets, the alleyways. He says, go out to the borders. Go out to the Gentiles, to the broken, the sorrowful. Go to the ends of the nation. Leave Israel. Just fill this banquet. Do whatever is necessary. Compel them to come in. Whatever it takes, no matter the cost. No matter the cost, do everything we can to bring them in because that is what is graceful and loving. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how loving is it to look at a person in our life, to know that they are not going to be in heaven and then not do anything about it? How much do you have to hate somebody to know that they're going to suffer in hell and then not do anything about it? So, for those of you in this room and those of you online that have given your lives to Christ, been made new in his image, We are called to reflect him in all that we do. To have every second of our lives, every step, every breath, glorify him. To proclaim Jesus in all that we do and all that we have, no matter the cost. And so for those of you that have not yet had the message of the gospel penetrate your heart and soul and soaked into your body, we have, here it is, We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. And so in his unfathomable love and mercy, he looked down at you and he sent his son Jesus to die in your place, to take on the punishments for the sins that you committed. He bridged the gap for us in his death and died so that if we place our faith in him and him alone, we may inherit eternal life. We may be made new. that's it that's all there is to it we have all been invited to the table with the father so are we going to accept it are we going to go out and proclaim this to the outsiders to the pre and the post christians through our prayers our actions our conversations and so i urge you all to look at yourself look at your life and ask "Whatever am i doing whatever it takes no matter the cost to compel everyone around me to come into this great heavenly banquet with Jesus? And if the answer is no, now is your moment. We are going to take communion. And so, as you take and eat the body and blood of Christ, I urge you to reflect, to submit yourself in prayer, and ask that God will work in you. Father, use me as a vessel. Recommit your life to this calling of the Great Commission as we reflect on this gift that has been
1: given to us today and forever.